The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Podcast. This is a Jack White Third Man Records history program, season six, and I'm your co-host Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host James Kaminsky. Wow, what an opener we had! What an open show we had. Thank you to everyone who participated in last episode's open show, and anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about. First of all, shame on you. Second shame. of all, shame with the bell, the bell thing. Third of all, we're going to have you march naked down the hall of whatever place you're in right now and go watch it on YouTube. But you have to pace while you're nude and somebody is going to be ringing a bell behind you saying shame until you finish it. It's two hours long, so it's going to be a bit of a slog there. But I believe in you. You'll get through it. I don't understand why Paul wants this to happen, but (laughs) I guess I'm also... It's my thing, James. It's Paul's thing. I'm also going to be, uh, I, I mean, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound, right? So here we are. Shame. Last episode was our Third Men podcast open show. It had a visual component, James. It did. People can head over to youtube.com slash C slash the Third Men podcast. And that's the letter C, not the, the word C. So Or the other word C. Yeah. <laughs> not the c word you can head over there and check that out if you haven't already but this is our first let's call it audio only debut of the season although we did have an audio component to the last episode this is a special one james we got a big one for our audio (laughs) debut of season six huge giant 
He's a he's a large he's a large imposing force upon us. <laughs> what where am I going? I with think this? I'm beginning to understand why people take sips of uh, a mug of what we think is coffee but is actually water on late night shows and it's to just watch people finish. <laughs> Paul likes watching you finish. Uh, <laughs> fucking coffee came out of my nose. <laughs> Jesus. Well, as you've noticed, we're not bleeping the swear words anymore in this season. So the C is for coffee. It's good enough for me. Uh, we are going to be starting this audio season off with a very special extended interview. Jack White's tour manager of the last, I believe, 14 years or so, Lalo Medina, is going to be joining us on the show today. It was such a pleasure to talk to him, and he was super nice. If I recall, I woke up to a text message from him that said we had run out of ideas and he'll be there to help or something along those lines. So that was great. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. We talk about that a little bit in the uh, interview, which you'll hear in a moment. But Lalo was wonderful. In fact, James, I remember the first time we heard Lalo's name uttered was when we first started this podcast five years ago jesus we were talking with some listeners it was during those first few episodes and somebody had mentioned running into lalo or somebody and i I didn't really have a conception of who he was obviously we had seen lalo because Mm -hmm. he's been a presence on all these tours that we've seen and, and and really any tour documentary usually has him involved we wouldn't have seen it at that time but if you watch kneeling at the anthem Washington, D.C., the Jack White uh, 2018 live concert documentary, which, you know, come to think of it, I'd like to watch again. I haven't seen it since the time. Lalo's all over that one. I think he is in Great White Northern Lights and Pieces, right? He's in that documentary a little bit. He almost definitely makes an appearance. Yeah. So he started with Jack during the Icky Thump tour. And what a tour. (laughs) What a tour to start with. It was a well-received tour the tour that we got to see the Stripes on. And boy, was Jack in prime form for that tour. And yeah, crazy one at that, because that included the under Great White Northern Lights stuff. So the the Canada leg was huge. We're going to get into all that. We're going to get into Lalo's history a little bit. You're going to really love this extended interview. James and I had such a blast talking to Lalo. We'd like to thank him again for joining us. But James, before we get to all of that, hold up. Oh, the segment is hold up. Hold up is a new segment that I'd like to introduce to this show. Paul shocked me. He's thrust this upon me. (laughs) Hold up. Waiting for me to finish. (laughs) Hold up, James. Hold up. I'm holding up. All right. Hold up is a new segment I'd like to add to the show where in our everyday lives, we come across a story or a fact or some kind of relevatory bit of information that reminds us of something we've covered on the show before and maybe unlocks a little bit of context 
about something we've covered on the show before. Does that make any sense? I mean, yeah, sure. Is this similar to the other segment that I can't recall off the top of my head? It's kind of like Rough Detectives, but okay, it is as if the Rough Detectives have retired and yes. then are gently sitting on their rocking chairs in the country. And then a car passes by and they're like, oh, it was a red car. The killer had a red car this whole time. Well, oh, well, he's still out there. We've locked time to retire. We've locked the wrong man up. You know what I mean? It's that. I think I know what you mean. And I, I think we have to help the person get out of jail. Because ca- I think they're. <laughs> the- also, if you've come here to the Third Men podcast expecting us to have fresh, new awesome ideas great on you good good thinking we've recreated a segment we've had for the third time i don't think we have though because this isn't a smell of fact okay and it's not rough detectives because i didn't detect anything it's just it reminded me of something okay i'm into it i don't (laughs) don't understand it all right all right let me let me let me say the thing, and then that'll give you an idea of what I mean, okay? No, let me, let me make fun of the segments. <laughs> All right, here, here it is. Okay, so yes. back in our Jack White and Jay-Z collaboration uh, Lost Album episode that we did, I think it was episode, I want to say like 98 or something, or 99, sure. something like that. We talked about Jack White and Jay-Z's collaboration, how it never quite panned out, and in that episode... We mentioned something along the lines of Jack had been reached out to by Kanye West's people. Mm -hmm. And there was some correspondence. There was maybe some musical exchange. I think if I'm recalling correctly, Jack had put something together or sent some ideas Kanye's way. And then they just never, simply never heard back. Do you remember this, James? We're in our rocking chairs now thinking about it. Yeah, no, and I vaguely remember this, and I also think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, so I found something that came up that was relevatory in maybe getting to the bottom of, like, why that happened, and that caused me to go, hold up! (laughs) I think I have some context here, and there's no Jack White song that says context or something. Is context spelled K-A-N-T-E-X-T? Because, like, con- Kanye. Con- con- Context! Oh. oh, that's better. Would have been a much better. <laughs> better. <laughs> but we are stuck with Hold Up. So, Todd Rundgren had the exact same experience with Kanye West. Are you talking my favorite Philadelphian musician and yours, guy in many jumpsuits, Todd Rundgren? Todd Jefferson Rundgren, who is a kooky, kooky man. You know who Todd Rundgren is. Yeah, he's famous for being a part of the all-star band. Yeah, well, he was kind of like, as Dad would describe him, the Jack White of the 70s, in a way. Like, where he was doing a lot of different styles, joining a lot of different bands, pushing a lot of boundaries. I like Todd Rundgren a lot. In fact... Yeah, leader of the new cars. Leader of the new cars, that's right. And in our very first episode of Now Hear This, we talk about A Wizard, A True Star by Todd Rundgren, which is a truly insane thing that was cut to vinyl by human being hands and it's bizarre and i now have i showed you this james oh my god that is a todd rundgren hoodie wow that is a bizarre hoodie in a good way like in a right rock and roll adventure sort of way so now that i'm wearing my todd rundgren hoodie i'll finish telling this story so 
the exact same thing that happened to Jack White happened to Todd Rundgren. And I think I'm sensing a pattern here because... Mm-hmm. Jack White also joined the new cars. <laughs> Jack White also joined the new cars. So Todd Rundgren says he worked on Kanye West's Donda album recently to, mm-hmm. quote, no avail. I'm going to read from this article here from Variety. Todd Rundgren, who's about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which, by the way, he hates and has boycotted the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though he's being currently inducted into it, which is really, <laughs> good for really him. funny. Yeah. Uh, doesn't sound like he hopes to ever see Kanye West joining him there. Quote from Todd, I'm one of the few artists not on Kanye's album, Donda, Rundgren says in a new interview, but it wasn't for lack of being asked. The rocker says he was invited to participate on Donda and even has, quote, three albums worth of Kanye stems on my computer, end quote. But finally, he bowed out after a year of work with no end and not much valuable input in sight, quote, I kept getting called by Kanye to add vocals onto the record. When it got into the home stretch in July, I just said, that's enough for me. I have no idea whether any of this is being used. You don't get much feedback from him regarding what it is. I didn't mind working on his gospel stuff. If you want to sing about Jesus, go ahead. I don't care. I'll help you do it, you know? If you want to sing about your troubles with your wife, go ahead and do it. I don't care. But he wasn't okay with continuing to be Kanye's, quote, driftwood in the process without knowing how or even if his work would be used. After initially telling writer Matt Wardlaw that, quote, I'm one of the few artists not on Kanye's album, Rundgren hedged on that a little, saying that there might be, quote, a possibility that I'm actually in there somewhere. There's so much junk in that record. I eventually came to the realization that, as a musician, he's a shoe designer. He's just a dilettante at this point. Which is really, really funny. Yeah, scathing. Rundgren goes on to say, listening to Donda, he believes West, quote, hurriedly wrapped the whole thing up and put out what is obviously really raw, unprocessed stuff. It's because Drake was running the whole process. Afraid of being overshadowed by Drake's certified lover boy, Rundgren maintains West, quote, hurried up and released the album the weekend before Drake could get his out. And in the end... Drake ate his lunch anyway. So that's really the most relevant Todd Rundgren has sounded maybe since the 1970s. I love that he un- like knows this information. Yeah. He's keeping up with Drake and Kanye and their albums. Who? I mean, he's a music fan. But but who is thinking that Todd Rundgren is that plugged in to the Kanye-Drake beef? I mean, fair. Yeah, That's wild to me. And And by the way, totally explains the Jack thing. It sounds like Kanye just asks people to do shit. You think this is what happened with McCartney? And it's what happened with McCartney, too. We talk about it a little bit on the McCartney 3 Imagined episode of Take It Away, where the dude from Blur, and I guess he also founded the Gorillas. I didn't know that. But anyway, that fella texted McCartney after the Kanye news came out and said, stay away from that guy. He's like a musical succubus. All he wants to do is collect everyone and use them for his own gains. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care about you or anything like that. So this is clearly some kind of a weird pattern with Kanye. And I guess that makes total sense for what happened with Jack. Now, James, you can see why this wasn't a rough detectives and this wasn't a smell of fact. This is more like, oh, I get it. Well, I mean... I think I'm getting some car 
context. So context is everything. So the eyes on your Rundgren shirt are really tripping me out because there's three visible, then there's your eyes, then there's your mouth, which is kind of shaped like an eye in the Todd Rundgren kind of way. Yeah. And so it's just there's a lot of eyes staring at just me. a lot of eyes. And it's, it's really starting to freak me out. All right. What do you say we get into this uh, Lala Medina interview, huh, James? Yeah, let's do it. He was super great, and I am super excited to share it with you all. Are you recording now? Yes, I'm recording now. <laughs> good, good. You must have run out of run out of topics. <laughs> we have not- <laughs> That was I tell you one of the greatest emails to wake up like the greatest push notifications to wake up to was Lalo Medina, you guys have run out of ideas, huh? It was like a- <laughs> it was like- bottom. So I was like wiping my eyes. I was just like, "What? What?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I guess sorry to find you here at rock bottom. <laughs> Welcome. We get that a lot. We're like, oh, you must have run out of people. We're like, no, we just like talk out of music folks. Like, that's what we like. Like, Pat Pantano said the same thing. I'm like, dude, you're amazing. Like, what are you talking about? All right, let's jump in. Yeah. Ask me Lalo, anything you want. Welcome, Lalo, to the Third Men Podcast. I am so happy. I got this big grin on my face. I'm very happy here. You are one of these shadowy figures that lurks behind all of the projects that we know and love. And I remember it was early in the podcast where James and I were talking about who are our like dream people we wanted to talk to. And one of the names was yours. And we're like, nah, he's never going to talk to us. And yet here you are. <laughs> yeah, I almost did it. As you know, I was like, <laughs> I even emailed Blackwell. And I was like, come on, man, tell me this is a terrible idea. <laughs> I've done it twice. And I'm like, yeah, I was going to say. I know it's a terrible idea. No, I'm just kidding. Ben has a nasty <laughs> habit of coming on this show. It's so, so offensive. Awesome. Well. No, but um, no, well, thank you. That's all very nice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. So you are Jack White's tour manager. You have been for quite some time now. And that's how people would have known you and probably would have seen you at some shows. But I was wondering if we could start talking a little bit about your journey into the music world because... Your musical upbringing has actually come up once or twice in Jack White projects over the years, and your really? your yeah, and your influence has, I think, been felt on on a number of occasions. And so, I was wondering how you found yourself in the world of the music business and therefore tour management. What was your musical upbringing like? Is it the kind of thing where you just wanted to get in there and participate? Were you originally trying to be part of bands and then found your way into the business on the tour management side? How'd that all come about? Excellent questions. In my case, it was totally accidental. Yeah. Incidental to what I was doing. I was teaching high school English at the time Yeah. when a band that I knew got signed to a label and they needed a tour manager. And they figured if I can take care of a bunch of high school students, I can take care of them. (laughs) And uh, I'm not sure if they were right, but I was, I said no twice. And then I was like, I know I was 25 years old, 25 or six. And, you know, I'm young and no mortgage and no car note at the time and little rent. So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to quit teaching for a year or two and go see the world and, you know, come back. Yeah. 
And then, of course, you know, one band leads to another band. Um, that particular band was a band called Ozo Motley from L.A. I'm not yeah. sure if you're familiar with them. They're a 10-piece Latin funk hip-hop fusion band that was very popular in the mid-90s and they, a great band. And two of those members of that band were also in a band called Jurassic Five. Right. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine this world with no oppression and no need to dabble in greed and transgression? <laughs> the solution for murder and prostitution. Never glorify this pollution on television, corrupting entire nation. Explicit images never free and will meet you regardless of proven innocence. Turning to crime and not using intelligence, what? Makes me wonder sometimes, are we in hell or inches away from confronting the powers that be? So in seconds, what is taking some hours to see? This sort of leads me in a roundabout way to me first meeting Jack and the White Stripes. Um, because I was tour managing then Jurassic Five in like 99, 2000, maybe 2001. Actually, somebody can sleuth and figure out <laughs> where, where, when this happened and what festival it was exactly. It's written down somewhere, of course, but I'm too lazy to look it up. But it was Jurassic Five, The Roots and The White Stripes all shared festival accommodations because you know, there they, they used to have these traveling festivals where they would put all these bands together and all, you know, to save money, same flights, same hotels, right. and they would take buses from, you know, and take all bands to to and from the airport just to save on on transport too. So yeah. So those three bands were sort of paired up at this festival. Wild. And in that process I got to know not so much Jack and Meg, because I you know, I I don't necessarily make it a habit of talking to to the talent like that people that i don't know but and also frankly i was a little intimidated by them because they were they were very enigmatic and i was just like mysterious and venturing that world playing with quest love and uh, <laughs> yeah, all of us i got to know the tour managers for all those bands because that's you know the circle that i ran in so i got to know john baker uh, and hey mr pastry yes is, is that, that is uh, that what he's called? uh when we talked to bruce brand he said that john baker was lovingly called mr pastry i never <laughs> called him that um <laughs> he had the job before me so we never worked together he was just, but obviously he was still a friend and he still, you know, I met him after the fact and he would still come to shows and stuff. But yeah. at the time I got to know him and I got to know Peter Yozel, who was the production manager at the time. Cut to two years later, now I'm tour managing a band called the Mars Volta and we're again in Australia. And again, we're on a festival that also has the white stripes. Peter again, who I hadn't seen in a couple of few years since I, you know, tour managed Jurassic Five 
again, somebody can sleuth and tell me the years. Because <laughs> Mars, I can I can do it myself, I suppose. But anyway, I hook up with Peter again, and we hit it off. And he's moving to LA, and we become really good buddies. And right at the time where Jack was looking for a change in tour managers, and he and they hired me stupidly. <laughs> but, but um, that was in 2007. So I started with Jack on the Icky Thump tour. Amazing. And I've been with him ever since because it's been, at least for me, it's been an incredible, wonderful experience that you can have. Mars Volta seems to have a lot of crossover with the Jack White world. I mean, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. We'll talk about some of those ways a little bit later as well. But boy, 2007, what a time to join up with Jack. That's why. Yeah, yeah it was it was pretty amazing to me, you know, and, and I made the jump from the Mars Volta to the White Stripes. And I thought, well, it, you know, it's funny as like, I've been lucky to work with really great bands and all of those bands I've had great relationships with. I really love those people. You have to, you know, you get really dug into their lives because you're telling them where to go and what to do in a sense, not what to do creatively, just like you got to be here at this time and do that, you know, the logistic stuff. Right. And at least for someone like me, I I do that, you know, very much from a very caring perspective, I guess. But no, I, I, I operate very much from a level of love, not to get corny. And, and, you know, the more deeply you get in, the more deeply you're entrenched in someone's professional lives, and then it becomes yeah. great yeah. personally as well. It seems like a lot of the bands you've managed had very similar vibes. I mean, they're not all the same kind of genre and stuff, but were there any favorite musical groups or anything like that growing up that might have led to this sort of thing? Oh, yeah, my musical history. Yeah, no, I didn't really... And I say this with all respect to everyone I work with, but music wasn't my overriding thing when I was growing up. You know, I I liked it, of course. And I say this because I'm around, obviously, people whose music has been in their entire lives. It's their entire existence. You know, they're Mm. they're, they're driven by it creatively, emotionally, everything. But that's never been like that for me. I was not really sure what I was into, but I really, I was kind of into... uh, well, I knew what I was into. I was always, I was like a student body president, the line leader in second grade. And you know, I was the kid who liked being, telling, you know, sort of organizing <laughs> and telling people, okay, if you need help, I'm here to help. And where can I, you know, go this way, go that way. You know, I yeah. was always, like I said, I, I was, um, I was the line leader in second grade. And I think that's where it started because I <laughs> got really obsessed with having the straightest line in school. Wow. Line leader is a me and call me a teacher's pet and a nerd. And I, and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I got the straightest line in second grade. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an important job, line leader. Am you're right in the middle of that alphabet there. So you would have been right in the middle. It sounds like you had to really fight and claw your way to get to the top. No, no, no. I, I went 
I, and this was the, another lesson I learned. If I went straight to the top, I went straight to the teacher first day and <laughs> said, I'm here to help. There's some life lessons here, I think, actually. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, that, that was, you know, that's really kind of my motivating factor. So it was never, music seriously came out of nowhere. And the band connection is really, turns out now my musical taste, but it wasn't my decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Ozo Motley guys I met just sort of randomly. That's another long story, which I'll tell you for part two. No, um, I mean, you're more than welcome to come on for a part two, please. No, 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 no. That's a that's that's. I'm gonna need a drink for that story. No, but um, it's just one leads to another. I think I got to the Mars Volta because Jurassic Five shared a business manager with Sparta, which was the other half of At the Drive and Broke Up. There's the other band, and then that led to. Mars Volta because of Sparta connection, common crew. Right. And then the Jack thing, again, the white stripes thing is because I happen to be, you know, on tour. I, I guess there is also, I should mention, an important note there is it wasn't just Peter, obviously, that hired me. It came from Ian uh, as well. Because, in fact, it was Ian's idea, I'm sure, yeah. uh, come to think of it, because he told me very early on, we'd like to get you to, I think it, when, I, when I met him first, when I started when I was with Jurassic five, I think he's like, we got to get you on board with us and work with us. And I was like, yeah, you call me anytime, you know, <laughs> and then eventually he called, but, uh, you know, but it, and that actually was way before I met Peter. So Ian deserves a lot of credit as well for my career, uh, as it were. Ian Montone. Yeah. Ian uh, Montone, Jack's Montone. manager. And, um, for the last also several years for the last, I think almost all of those 14 years, I've been also working for Ian uh, in the management office. So um, I help him in the touring of his other clients, just sort of helping them put it together, but not not touring it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it's just been like fortuitous to meet one great person after another. That's led me to a very satisfying and fulfilling career as Jack's tour manager, which <laughs> I hope to do until I grow more grays. <laughs> I go full gray and bald. It's sort of a side question, but a friend of mine, Blake Kobashigawa, used to work for Montone. You ever run in with Blake? Yeah, Blake? yeah, sure. Blake yeah. was Blake worked the uh, work the desk, worked Ian's desk, <laughs> which is no easy task because the man is very very busy. Lovely person to work with, though. Uh, but he's just you know he, this is yeah. I don't know what happened or whatever why he's not around. I think he just got different opportunities, but I understand he's doing really great now, right? They don't let people with hair like that into jail. I don't think. Yeah. That's a free pass. That's a freebie. Yeah. That, one. Um, that was a long way of answering your question that I don't give a shit about music. No. Um, I do say this often, though, that music has literally nothing to do with my job. Yeah. Because I don't perform it. I don't I'm not responsible for any of it. You know, thank God there's guitar techs and sound engineers and a wonderful team of people that help do all the stuff to be a part of that team. All I do is just lead the ship from point A to point B, you know? Yeah. That's really my number one job. And yet you still uh, hold influence at times over the musical side of things. In one instance in particular, I think of is when the Raconteurs recorded, I'm your puppet. (laughs) Jack cited you calling it, uh, what was it you called it? Cholo oldies. A cholo oldie. Uh, I give a shout out to my homegirl right there behind me. <laughs> she was definitely listening to I'm Your Puppet. 
Yeah, no, that was a cholo oldie, a jam. Yeah. So, I mean, were there songs like that from your childhood that were favorites and stuff? I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of, and I, uh, a lot of rancheras, Mexican music in my house. I'm Chicano, first generation, which means yeah. my parents are Mexican immigrants. Yeah. And uh, I was the first gen born here. So uh, my house was filled with Mexican music growing up almost right. exclusively. But then, you know, my brother brought in a seven inch of double Dutch bus in the late seventies. You know that jam, double Dutch bus? No, but we're gonna play yeah. a little bit of it right here. You, you gotta put it on. It's a super <laughs> jam. And he had and he had the seven inch of that. So we wore the shit out of that. <laughs> Speaking of, my parents have never come to a show that I've tour managed ever. Wow. Really? Mostly because it's, you know, I haven't tour managed any ranchera acts. <laughs> Ozo Motley was the closest that I came because my mom's priest in Mexico heard of the band. And then now she was like, oh, wow. She was very <laughs> priest knew. Anyway, um, no, I, I you know, so it wasn't like, so a double Dutch bus was one that sticks out in my head. But, you know, I was sort of just listening to music that was around that my siblings brought in and it wasn't usually very good. Like my other brother wore the shit out of the Kenny Rogers 20 greatest hits. So <laughs> now every, I, I get shivers every time i hear the gambler <laughs> but um it wasn't a driving force really i sort of incident if that makes any sense but now i listen to you know all kinds of stuff but i don't want to bore you yeah. that uh, well <laughs> i mean yeah, I, I really don't want to bore you literally on a music podcast right? So I guess all right. it's all good. Yeah. i'm telling you you got the wrong guy you, you you're, you're Talking to the wrong guy. We are absolutely not, I assure you. But you mentioned the Mars Volta, which you're listed as a tech credit on the scab dates back in 2005? Yeah, I did the Volta from That was some of the most electrifying live shows I've ever seen, just watching those dudes rip and shred yeah. every night. And the funny thing is it would go for like two hours and play like six songs, you know, or five <laughs> songs, you know. But they were just so insanely good, so great to watch every night. And I was just super spoiled by that experience. And they challenged me in a really great way. They were like the biggest band at that point in my career. I think I was going to we were going to play the Greek theater in L.A. and it was going to be my first thing. And it was a big management company who I'm still very good friends with, very close with. And they um, gave me a shot and I took it really seriously and just, you know, really dove in and figured out the things that up to that point, you know, I was trying to learn because at that point now it'd been. But I started in 97. So I would I was what? 
uh, do the math for me, eight years into my career as a tour manager? Yes. I'm an artist. I do not know math. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that because, it's, A, it's my life, and, B, I also do math as part of my job. <laughs> I hope Ian doesn't listen to this podcast. No, but so that, you know, I, that led, I think, you know, me really diving in and figuring out that band, which I really thoroughly enjoyed doing, it really led me to be able to do a band like the White Stripes on the Icky Thumb Tour, which was like a big deal, you know, and obviously a huge jump in my in my personal life, in my career. And as I said, I've just been really lucky to still be there and still like even grow, you know, have a tighter bond with him personally and professionally. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Was it you who suggested or made the connection with Ike to Jack? In- well, no, I, they- I don't. I don't make any, I mean, I, I help, you know, like contacting stuff, but, but it, this is Jack, Jack makes every, aside from that, I'm your puppet thing. Like I, honestly, <laughs> well, it just, it seemed like a, a connection that may have gone, not from you, like telling Jack, you should get this guy. Cause Jack, I'm sure has heard the Mars Volta, but like, it's one of those things like you guys were all together at one point in time. So I, yeah, we, and we, we actually had a really fun bowling night in, uh, in Australia. Uh, Jack is, <laughs> Jack uh, and I uh, are both big bowling fans. And at the time, you know, we didn't really know them that well, but Jack rented out a bowling alley or bowling lanes in uh, Sydney or Melbourne. I think it was Sydney. And he invited the Volta to come bowl with him. And so we, we had a bowling night, the White Stripes and the Mars Volta uh, per, <laughs> per Jack's invite. And, you know, just had a nice social hang. And, and uh, the Volta played Omar by the way, those guys, insane taste in music, and they put on the best salsa jams. Uh, by the way, I, rest in peace, Larry Harlow passed away today. He's a, he was a, an incredible keyboard player in the Fania All-Star camp uh, and, and band leader himself. Uh, anyway, um, he passed away today, but he, um, he, Omar played the most insane salsa mix during our bowling night, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. Of course, Jack kicked everyone's ass. He's a really good bowler. But, you know, that that sort of, I think, established a connection where at least when it was time to hire a new tour manager, I think that's maybe uh, my bad bowling helped. Because <laughs> yeah, if well, I won, who knows? Maybe you wouldn't have hired. Yeah. Those, <laughs> th- th- those bowling connections run deep, though. I mean, we've heard stories from everybody. Mick Collins talks about the bowling. And, I mean... Hell, I think Meg even worked at the Garden Bowl for a Did long she? time. Early. Yeah, yeah. In, in you know what's great about bowling is that almost every town in America or the world, for that matter, has a bowling alley. Yeah. So on tour, that's a fun day off activity. Almost anywhere. Do you and I go to the same alley? It's the one uh, near the Equestrian Center. That's um, the one in the Equestrian. Uh, it's it's um, uh, pin 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 light pin. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, no, 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 no. You're thinking of pins. Um, pick, pick, Pickwick. 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 It. It's a great bowling alley. In fact, it's it's sadly one of the last of the old school style, like properly yeah. old bowling lanes. They're yeah, all now is. turning into like these like disco bowling lanes. Yeah, Although Jewel a- City Bowl, which I think changed their name in Glendale, is is now also really good. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. I love yeah. Pickwick. Pickwick is wonderful. They they had a, a lovely old little old man behind the bar there, dressed to the nines, has the the 
the bow tie he must have been seventy thousand years old but he was just standing there smiling serving drinks at the bar it was such a wonderful warm place and i haven't <laughs> been in a long time because of covid19 however i would love to go back and bowl again oh yeah man this is the importance of having your own ball we've actually uh bowled there uh jack and i have bowled there we went on a break from conan because conan is right up, right up the yeah. street yeah yeah and the way they do the show is that you do your sound check like you know at noonish or something and then you take the show at at five so you have like a couple few hours to kill and the hotel usually is over the hill in hollywood or beverly hills or something like that so they send you all the way out there well, no, we decide where we stay. Oh, okay. And usually you're, you're doing a TV show at the same time you're on tour. And so you're just sort of picking the best hotel for all of those things. Anyway, instead of going back over the hill to the hotel, we just go to the bowling alley. There's a great bowling alley up the street. <laughs> right? And of course, at two in the afternoon, nobody's there. Nobody's so there. No place to ourselves. It was amazing. I love that. Now, you have been on the ground floor of nearly all of Jack White's various musical incarnations over the years. We talked a little bit about the White Stripes. We started to talk a little bit about the Jack Solo tours. As someone with perhaps unique knowledge of all the different iterations of Jack's bands and what their dynamics are like, can you give us a little bit of a an impression of the different vibes of some of those groups on tour? Because touring can be, you know, it can range from anything, from a family homespun affair to like Bacchanalia. What is the the vibe on tour from a, let's say, a Jack Solo tour to like a Dead Weather tour to a Tours tour? What are those different vibes like? Uh, that's a good question. We generally like to keep it light and friendly and fun. So the overriding vibe is one of, you know, I think everyone's just really happy to be there. And we like to have a good time while we're out on the road. We go to a lot of baseball games and and this is true of all the projects, but it's interesting though, because they, they do all have their different dynamics because, you know, obviously with Jack Solo, he has a band of course, and they're all, you know, friends, but it's just, it's not the same dynamic. They all have their own unique relationships and unique characters as bands and the way they all play off of each other. So the dead weather was raucous is probably (laughs) the the most. When you have Allison. Accurate way of, of uh, describing that tour, but it was super fun and totally unexpected, as you guys probably know, because that band just sort of materialized out of nowhere at the end of that Tours Kills tour. Right. So I think the whole time we were on the road for that stuff, the overwhelming thing was like, we're not even supposed to be doing this. (laughs) And we were having so much fun doing it. I mean, I think initially, honestly, the original idea, because, you know, again, they didn't expect to make a record, they didn't expect to form a band, and all of a sudden, there's this record that they made, it, you know, really quick, and and it's like, let's go have fun and tour it. And initially, I swear, the first conversation was like, we just get in, like, a van and trailer and just play clubs and down and dirty and, you know, like, <laughs> have fun, you know? And, of course, it's once you 
actually start building it, you're like, oh, well, actually, no, we could do this venue. And actually, we're going to need to carry some more gear than, yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's a two bus, two truck tour. <laughs> no, no, I don't think we ever had a truck, but our big two trucks. But anyway, and then, you know, Rackin Tours, also a very unique and interesting and hilarious dynamic because the seven of us, I guess it's the five band members, David Swanson, uh, our best mate and tour photographer, and myself, we get an SUV in each city to drive ourselves around everywhere. And so we just go and every day, find a place to eat and a place to go do something that's kind of fun. So it's either bowling or a record shop or just, you know, some interesting site or a museum or something that occupy our time. So we, we end up just having, especially this last run, just the most fun. It felt like it it didn't feel like work, you know, we just, because every day we're just trying to one up each other on the laughter because it's, it's literally nonstop. caught the amoeba show the secret gig the small one at that little club i forget out here whichever one that was and then i caught the greek i caught it i caught you guys three times out here on that racks tour that was awesome that was like great tour yeah that was by the way that club but after the amoeba show was at jules catch one that's it catch one that's right yeah which has a really interesting history as being a safe haven for the gay black community in, in oh. the 70s and 80s or maybe 80s and 90s there's a really great documentary somewhere about jules catch one really and it was there for years i mean it was a pillar of the gay black community huh. and yeah and it was a really great i mean multi-room disco giant disco so it would just go off super fun Nice. Amazing. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So when we were trying to figure out a cool and interesting place to play, we thought of that place and it turned out it was really fun. Kind of an inverse tin horn flats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one that's one that's good. Yes, yeah, you could say that. Um, no, but um, but yeah, no. So uh, yeah. Anyway, what were we talking um, about? You mentioned some of the baseball stuff and stops, which you know are a part of the tour. And I know you're a baseball fan. I mean, obviously, you're going to the Dodgers. But uh, Is there a baseball-related tour stop you're most fond of on those tours? Is it the Sandlot Games? Was it Cooperstown? God, there's so many good ones. And, you know, as a baseball fan, it's hard not to just... First of all, anytime I go to the ballpark, it's a great day. Because mm-hmm. I just... Yeah. I still get goosebumps walking up to the park and, like, you know... I feel like a little kid walking in. I'm like, this is amazing! <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, 
you mentioned Cooperstown, which is unreal. And that Cooperstown Sandlot game that I don't even know if anyone knows about. James passed by it, right? I passed by you guys playing. And no I was, way! I, I looked at my wife and I went, I think that's them. And she went, it's... <laughs> It's it's gonna rain. They're not out here. But I was so, like, okay, yes, we were there. So we so the uh, so th- th- that day was it started off as a real bummer because we were meant to play actually in the Cooperstown Stadium, like the one where they have the All Star Game, like the, the the one right next to the yeah. Hall wow. of Fame. Because we we became um, good buddies with Jeff Idelson, who at the time was the president of the Hall. When we did a tour, we met him and great guy, and gave us the most insane, you know, back of house tour, like just, Oh, here's Babe Ruth's bat. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, but so Jeff hooked up playing our Sandlot game at the stadium. And then we wake up at, at Cooperstown and it's raining and it's overcast and gray. It's like, it's, it's, it's not really coming down, but it had rained overnight and it was, they were calling for rain that day and it was super gray and cloudy day. Damp, of course. So, and they didn't want to ruin the field. So they called it off. Mm-hmm. And, and it's of course Jeff has nothing he has no say over that because he's you know he doesn't do field operations but so but Jeff being a great guy and a great baseball fan he found us that other field that was just I think 10 miles down the road or something yeah and of course nobody knew it was happening so it was just the two teams and then Jeff and his buddy showed up and that was it and and it, we were just 20 and whatever, 30 adult uh, adults uh, out there playing a kids game. <laughs> Amazing. It was so it, it was cool to see and I after the fact I was like, "Oh, that was definitely them." Cuz like then you see Ben from Warstick is also there. It, like he was at the show and and his family and stuff. So like I saw all of the members of the team and some people yeah. still wearing like uniforms. I'm like, "Oh, okay. They were they were yeah. there." <laughs> That's been a great thing too is that Jack becoming a part of Warstick. It's been great meeting all those people too because um the games were, you know, they're sort of meant to, I think, ostensibly to advertise the brand, but really it's just us having a great time and getting to know these wonderful people that, that run the company and then their friends who, you know, he used to be a college baseball player. So he has like all these other friends his age and then other younger dudes that, you know, that he knows. And so it's a fairly competitive game and we just have a blast, yeah. you know, because no one's out there getting too serious about it we're just for the laugh and it's it's always a great time do you have a go-to position at the sandlot games they usually try to keep the ball from coming in my to my (laughs) my general direction which i don't blame them no usually the outfield and only for about an inning or two i'm more like the dugout trash talker (laughs) almost always trash talking my own team yeah you you can't let ben jenkins for example get too much of an inflated ego, you know, once it makes a good play. It's like, yeah. all right, hot dog, settle down. <laughs> well, he's, he's really good, actually. Now, I, uh, I was in attendance for one of those games at the, when you were out here in L.A., when you did the one down the street from Golden Road on San Fernando. That's right. I was there for that. My wife DJed that gig. Uh, it was a wonderful DJ set. I remember seeing the there was, there was some Led Zeppelin playing and stuff like. That. I remember, it was a it was a beautiful day. Except she brought and, vinyl because she only spins vinyl, and, and it was a little <laughs> sketchy with the sun and the. I know she had learned Serato. It was a wonderful time, but I, as I recall, Jack was also giving a lot of trash talk too. He was out there really giving people some people the business there. 
It, yeah, it's usually it's I can guarantee it's usually to make people laugh. <laughs> Every time we're out there, you, you probably notice uh, we're we have huge grins on our face usually in, the, in between. Uh, yeah, the trash talk. I mean, we'd also play. You know, we're like we want to win, so we're like yeah, yeah. So, but so it's fun. It's a great great time. But going to places like Wrigley Field or Fenway or all these beautiful old parks and and being treated so well by these teams is trust me something that I don't take for granted and I very much appreciate. And I you know send Jack the occasional thank you letter <laughs> for being a baseball fan and for. <laughs> Allowing me to ride his coattails. No, thank you, Jack. <laughs> I mean, I think he's just a, a man who's very enthusiastic about things and happy when others are enthusiastic too. At least that's the vibe yeah. I get. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, you know. And he was, by the way, very sweet that day. He, I was trying to find a way to see if there would be possibility to get a photo and he was very gracious and actually and took the time to get one with me it was very sweet of him to do because he didn't have to do that and so i what it was just such a wonderful memory that day and the fun that was coming off the field was palpable it's real i mean it's i mean it sucks striking out so much (laughs) (laughs) um so to get back to the touring the 2012 blunderbuss tour was sort of I don't know. I would categorize it as kind of peak innovation period for Jack in terms of tour in the sense that you have the revolving band lineup. That's that's oh, a show that's – Yeah, you, so you have these two bands and maybe they don't necessarily know until the day of or in some – Yeah. That's right. Situation, which one was going to be playing. But you also have the introduction of the secret gigs, which were something that were started in the White Stripes era and sort of happened throughout. So you really get this. Yeah. So you really get this culmination in a lot of ways of all the different types of touring experiments. And I think that that may be the height of those kinds of experimentations because in subsequent tours, they were scaled back some. But I mean, what were some of the challenges there for you? I mean, I. I suspect I know what some of the challenges were there for you, but do you find that those split second decisions were something based on your relationship with Jack easy to manage? Did you find that tour to be somewhat frustrating? Like what what are some of your recollections of <laughs> trying to facilitate that? I mean, well, first of all, he's he, he, Jack thrives on spontaneity as you can imagine. And you I'm sure know by now. And I love it. I think it's, it's the height of creativity and to watch it live and to watch this man just come up with these things like the two band thing. And trust me, you know, I, I'm responsible for running the budgets. And I was like, here you go, Jack. He's like, of course he, knows. he makes these decisions, but he's, that's not his overriding motivation. It's the art, it's the creativity. And to watch it happen motivates me and around him to just make it work. Because honestly, at the end of the day, it's not, rocket science what we're doing you know right. it's it's a rock and roll show so sometimes a rock and roll show is you know a busker on the street didn't take all day to set up and spend you know fifty thousand dollars doing it he just put his amp down on the street maybe put a mic in front of it and then started playing so it's as sim- it can be as simple as that obviously when you're dealing with somebody like you know the white stripes or jack or anything like that where you're coming, you know, that spontaneity comes into conflict with the real world and you sort of have to mitigate the circumstances of everything that can happen in those situations. And that, for me, of course it's challenging, but it's super fun because it's super rewarding. Because when you leave a gig like that, 
that you didn't know was going to happen this morning. <laughs> you, you know, you sort of want it, to, it, it's, it's also the hype of living, just living in general, because now you're really just going with the spontaneity of art and life and trying to help move that along. because you have more people, more personalities to manage and deal with. But to me, again, I, I was super motivated every day and very excited. I think the biggest, honestly, the biggest thing I dealt with was dealing with um, bummed out band members because they want to play, yeah, you know? So I have to, yeah. so if I can tell them, like, it's the guys today, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> my ear, gosh, now, you know. But yeah. but uh, honestly, I, I, didn't, I didn't even hear many of those complaints. I think that you just go with the flow. And I try not to let those challenges that come up with logistics get in the way of the vibe of the tour and interfering with why we're there, which is to have as much fun as possible while getting the job done, you know? Right. Yeah. And that seemed to be like the tour was an overwhelmingly positive experience, it seems, from everybody we've talked to who has been a part of the tour and anything we've read. But that did seem to be the main, I don't want to say complaint, but grievance was like, I I, I wanted to play. (laughs) And we got to, but like, it wasn't for lack of understanding or enjoyment, but it was just like, man, they got to do it again. Cool. And it truly was random. It was not, I mean, it turned out that a lot of times it would alternate. But there was no rhyme or reason to it. It was more just, obviously, if we're playing two shows in one city, we want to give the fans sort of those different experiences because it was, they were obviously different dynamics with the band. You know, yeah. and the only, you know, even the same songs weren't really alike, you know, because no two shows were ever alike because obviously, as you guys know, he doesn't have a set list either. So that spontaneity does have, the con- you know, its consequences because of people that really just want to play get my get bummed out but you know that's a small price to pay for such a wonderful experience for the band the artists and the fans yeah i i just wanted to be clear i'm not trying to paint too broad a brush here they weren't angry with lily <laughs> <laughs> may's just breaking fiddles back yeah. there <laughs> lily may's temper whoa boy yeah yeah Oof. he is the uh, sweetest person in the world i mean something like that is a pretty interesting logistical challenge and we suspect the answer is no but has jack ever come to you with an idea so audacious that you were like no we absolutely cannot um i don't remember any specifics but i mean there are certainly ideas that have to you know my job is is to receive an idea and first of all my always try to be my initial reaction is yes let's see if we can make this work but then you know sometimes logistics get in the way of a great plan and i don't remember specifics because i have a terrible memory <laughs> in fact i have such a terrible memory i forgot the question <laughs> has there ever been like a no you cannot do this like has he ever wanted to play in a druid container like in spinal tap and you were just like listen we're not 
we can't. I don't even know where to get a big druid rock. I, I can't. I mean, you, you talk to Wayne Coyne and he'll he'll let you know, yeah. I'm assuming. <laughs> I'd rather tell you about something that he came up with spontaneously and ask if it's possible on the day. And, and we were like, well... Yeah, let's try it. So, Roseland Ballroom. Ah, 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 I was there. I was there. I you was there. there. I was going to bring this up. I was there. I was there. That was one of the most exciting, memorable shows, not just of Jack, but I've ever seen. It was just, oh, man. So, we're at Soundcheck, and it, we were soundchecking the women, a band, for the main set stage. And he looks over at, I don't know if you know, for your, you know it, but for your listeners or viewers, Roseland Ballroom had the old school style dance ballroom stage in the middle of this oval dance floor, not unlike the Palladium in LA. But since they started doing rock and roll shows, they took that old and fairly small stage and converted it into like this VIP deck where they sold, you know, tickets at the edge of this stage and little tables. And it's elevated, obviously, because it's an old stage. And now you have a direct view of this end stage. So they moved the stage over here. The fans now are, the VIP fans have their tables there. And then everyone behind is standing room only SOR for general VIPs for your friends and family. But the, all those tables were sold. So, so Jack asks, can we have maybe in the encore break, we come back and we, the band plays on that stage. And we were like, well, huh, can we? So, of course, we asked the building and, and that's when they tell us, well, actually, we've already sold, you know, these VIP tables right in the front of the stage. It covers the, takes up the first 10 feet of the stage. And we're like, well, so we tell Jack and we're like, well, then we look at it and we're like, well, actually, isn't there a curtain there that we can just curtain off behind them? They're like, yeah, but what about your VIPs? Like, screw our VIPs. <laughs> they can watch the show with everybody else. Actually, there's another balcony on the other side, so we put most of them there. But we ended up, um, normally that curtain is never closed. But, of course, nobody noticed. So during the show, the curtain was drawn, the gear was set up, and all these VIP people had, I think there were like five or six, four top tables, and all these people sitting down enjoying the show. When during the show because now the gear is behind them on the second stage, right? Yeah. So during the show, right at the, sort of at the end, when I feel the encore might be coming, and again, there's no set list, so I have no idea when the encore is coming. So I have to tell these poor people, I said, listen, I'm going to come and tell you to leave in a hurry, and you just have to listen. <laughs> I have no time to explain. And by the way, there's a rock and roll concert going on. I have to yell in these people's ears, get up when I tell you to get up, okay? And they're like, yeah, okay. So sure enough, the encore break is happening. And while they're cooling down and we get the band secretly on stage behind the curtain, but we didn't want it to be too obvious and have them move during the encore break. We wanted to get the band in place first and not tell those people to move until right before it happened. So curtains ready to be drawn. We rushed and told all these people to get up and we had all these crew come and help us. And we just moved all the tables and chairs and all the people parted the curtains part and while the audience is looking this way you know facing the end stage another totally different band starts playing behind this curtain the guy band and it was just like
And at so, first, nobody knew how to react, right? Because everyone's like, where the hell is that coming from? Well, what's your, what was your experience like with that? I went from far back all the way on the right to front row. I was because I was with a group of friends and one of them like was just sort of there, you know, hey, you go to shows, one of them's just sort of there. And then I'm like the fan trying to get closer. Ultimately, I couldn't get closer. You got about halfway. Yeah, I got about halfway. I was sitting, I was like, I could rest my arm on the little side area, the people with the tables, right? I was like, whatever, like, I'll, I'll be seeing this tour again. It's fine. Like, I can see it well enough. Like, it's cool. And and obviously, I was blown away by the show. And then when it went from that to front row, yeah. that was the most exciting, cool experience I have ever had at a show ever. Like, I... <laughs> And he bursts into whatever it was, 16 saltines. Or, no, it was uh, Black Math. It, it was Black Math. And I, I, it was the most amazing thing. We had Dominic on the show, and I was telling Dominic, like, can you just, like, thank him for me? Like, that was – it was the <laughs> most beautiful gift because of the surprise element of it and just the exci- pure excitement, pure joy. It was it was remarkable. Wow. It was so thank fun. You. Thank it was you. so fun to watch to watch people's reaction because everybody's facing the stage and then they're like, yeah. you can they they they're literally confused for a beat for half a beat because they don't the PA is still hanging up there, so the music's coming there but there's not oh shit and then watch the entire <laughs> crowd rotate and then just go nuts because they weren't I mean the whole house came down I mean it was just people were just yeah. losing their minds it was uh, insane yeah. so uh. great. That's been one of the pleasures of my life is just watching this guy, you know, always trying to challenge himself into these really crazy, spontaneous situations where there's no safety net. There's no parachute. We're just going to go and see what happens, you know, and playing all those B shows and finding those venues. We didn't do any scouting in advance on any of those B shows, starting from those icky thump ones that we did on that tour in Canada. Yeah. Um, it was literally like, you know, we get up and you're, and, you know, well, where are we going to play today? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, taking out a city map and like, uh, you know, brainstorming and that type of thing. Although logistically challenging, it's always interesting and it's always a good time. And it's always just yeah engaging and motivating. We're going to have to get you on for a part two at some point to just go over every venue of the Canada tour, because that's its own. Like you guys took a caravan into Canada, like to go to these strange provinces that <laughs> oh, have yeah, never man. seen a, a white stripe before. <laughs> so, dude, That was flying to um, a Callaway. Oh my gosh, dude. Just, it was barren. And it was, this was the height of their population, which was in the dead of summer. I think 7,000 people in the entire region were there. But normally in the winter, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's, I don't know how they survive. I'm from LA, born and raised, and we were 100 miles south of the Arctic Circle. <laughs>
How was the caribou? I did not try it. <laughs> I saw Jack and Meg's reaction when they tried it, and Emmett Malloy, the director. Yeah. I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> he came on the show and he did recount that it was not his favorite taste. I mean, it was just, it was just raw red meat. Yeah. Well, wow. um, yummy. We had a quick lightning round for you. With oh, you. okay. Great, great. Yeah, so, all right. Yeah, we're going to cue the lightning round music. Uh, so we're going to play. It won't be Benny Hill theme, but we'll find something nice to play behind here. Okay, maybe double Dutch bus. <laughs> hey, yeah, very double good. Let's yeah, do that. Bus. Let's do that. All right. So I read that you've had trouble finding good tequila in Europe, saying, hey, Europe, literally nobody likes Cuervo Gold, uh, which is true. What is a go-to tequila of yours in the States? Oh, man. Fortaleza is one of my favorites. It's the uh, great-grandson or grandson of the guy who started uh, Sousa. But that guy was a very early tequila maker. Now, you know, three or four generations on with the tequila boom, this guy learned his the original Sousa's original recipes and makes a great tequila called Fortaleza. There's also a tequila called Lalo. Who is the yes? Who is <laughs> he? He is the grandson of Don Julio, the Don Julio. So you know, we're generational. <laughs> That's excellent. We just like to carry it. Yeah. Are you a sipper or are you? Um, you- I like my. Um, uh, I like tequila sodas. Is my drink. Okay. Yeah, with, yeah. The, with some lime. I found it's it's hard to find a good tequila to sip, and I worked for a marketing thing earlier in my life and, and we did marketing for Camarena and uh, it was it's fine <laughs> it's, but um, I'm going to get Lalo tequila I'm going to sip that Lalo's a good tequila Lalo's yeah. a good sip it's a I would qualify it as a sipper um, okay. 1942 is a great sipper too but nice and Casa Sur. anyway another uh, lightning round LA, LA natives uh, love their food trucks you have a food truck preference Mariscos Jalisco all right. Mariscos Jalisco. It's on Olympic. And they have incredible shrimp fried tacos. And I like their ceviche as well. Oh, I love a good ceviche. Oh, my God. That sounds great. <laughs> Excellent ceviche as well. It's tough, though, because you go and you have to get the tacos because they're sublime. And then, you know, while I'm there, while the tacos are cooling down, I have me a tostado de ceviche, de pescado. Are All you right. a corn tortilla man or a flour tortilla man? Flour. Okay. Next question. <laughs> um, uh, so you used to teach high school English. Uh, what's the worst excuse you ever got for a late assignment? Oh, man. That's a good question. Could I, but can I tell you a funny teaching story? That's, yes. Because that's, I had some... Uh, really nasty students. They were totally great. But I had, because I was a new teacher, they gave me, I, I had ninth and 10th graders and they gave me, my 10th grade class was all the worst kids in the school, I swear. <laughs> they put them all in my room. And it was one particular day where they were all just bouncing off the walls, going crazy. And I was getting so frustrated. I couldn't teach the lesson. I was getting pissed. And I'm like, you know what? You have to finish a one-hour essay on blah, blah, blah by the end of the period or you get detention. I'm done. And I go to my desk, pull my chair out to sit down, and I'm like, I'm hot. They had put tacks in my chair. So I jump out of my chair and I yell at the top of my lungs, 
you can believe that. <laughs> and of course, the class is falling out with laughter, losing it, just dying laughing. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, all right, that was hilarious. That was really, really funny. It's a, classic. To work. Yeah. It's a classic prank. And a classic prank. And then, you know, as soon as that happened, it was as quiet as a church and everyone finished their one page assignment and no one got it. Except, you know, I did offend the teacher next door because he was the leader of the Christian club. And I he definitely, he heard me yell, fuck. <laughs> it's anyway, <laughs> not to mention my students. But yeah, there you go. Weirdest curveball you've ever gotten on tour. Curveball? Yeah. I was throwing a curveball at a Warstick game. Is that, is that <laughs> That's a yeah, good answer. Crazy. Yeah, I, I was a little offended. I was like, dude, I'm a 50-year-old man, and you're throwing <laughs> me, and I haven't, I can't. Was it that bastard Ben Jenkins? Was it him? Did you do it wasn't him, but <laughs> I didn't even know who it was, but this pitcher was taking it a little too seriously. He threw me a curveball, and I'm like, yeah, I'm right, dude. You throw me a softball underhand, I'll still have a hard time hitting it. Um, I don't know, man. You know, it happens every day. Every day you are throwing curveballs, so it's hard to pick just one because they're not really curveballs anymore. You know, they're just like, they start looking like fastballs every <laughs> Maybe a slider occasionally. I have another one here. What's your favorite Jack Hare era? Are you a mutton chops man or are you a, uh, what, do you, what do you like when he straightens it? I like his hair now. The they're... blue. Blue hair, it's really cool. I like that part, part blue hair. You dig in the blue, I like that. Yeah, but you know, I don't really have a favorite hair era. A hera, we call it a hera. <laughs> a hera. I don't really have a, a hair era, a favorite hera. <laughs> okay, Brooklyn Dodgers or Los Angeles Dodgers, which city reigns supreme for the club? Easily LA, come on. Okay. You're asking an L.A. native here. <laughs> I'm just saying, their name came from dodging trolley cars. They could have, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense in L.A. Yeah, it's like when the jazz moved to Utah where they don't allow music, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, My East Coast is showing, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, 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 you, I, I, I see what you're saying, but no, we, we, we dodge bullets in L.A., so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lalo, thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much fun. You, you're amazing. You're amazing. I want to, once all this, uh, what, what do you call it, COVID? Once all that's over, I want to buy a coffee or beer or something. Say say hello. And, How about and, a tequila uh, soda? Tequila soda. There you go. Well, James, that was a lovely interview from Lalo Medina. It sure was. Thank you again, Lalo, for coming on. And uh, you're always invited to come back and talk about other tours or uh, just talk about being a teacher. That, that would be time. fun. Any yeah. old time. Yeah. It was a real awesome story of you getting a thumbtack in your butt that you <laughs> classic, shared. Classic prank. Which is classic. And uh, we had a blast. We just had a real blast. So thank you for joining us on the show. We'd also like to thank the band Radkey, who have reimagined the Third Men podcast theme song, which you may have heard in this current episode. And we are just so thrilled and taken aback and honored and all of that stuff that Radkey came in and helped us out to give us a new theme to kick off season six and beyond. Uh, it's mm-hmm. so cool. It's so cool. It really was. I heard it in my car and my jaw dropped and then I ran inside 
to play it for uh, Ariel, and she was like, oh my god, that's really cool. And Jack had heard it, and he was dancing around the room, and then he went, play it again! And so we played it some more. <laughs> Super cool to have them record that, and thank you, Radkey. Isaiah, D, Saul, thank you, all of you. And congratulations on all the success this year. Opening for the Foo Fighters, which is really cool. <laughs> you get to play with them on stage. If anyone hasn't listened to Radkey, Check out their music. They're amazing. You can head to radkey.net. And their new album, Green Room, is superb. So Green Room is their best by far of their whole catalog. And their whole catalog is great. I mean, there's like their classic stuff like Dark Black Makeup, which I still think is like my favorite song of theirs. But they have a lot of great albums, No Strange Cats and, and all these different ones. But Green Room is my favorite. Check that out. Radkey's awesome. Thank you, guys. Yes. If you would like to contribute to the Third Men podcast, there's an ad at the end of the show. You can donate to our Patreon, which is uh, super helpful and helps keep the lights on here. Thank you to all of our Patreon patrons. Yes. And if you'd like to help out and don't want to be a monthly subscriber, you can buy some merch from us at bit.ly slash thirdmenmerch. Pick up a tote bag, why don't you? I have some designs that uh, came from the open show that I'm going to throw together, and and you can get some there and... Yeah, it'll be a good time. Yeah. But before we leave this episode, James, hold up. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) We would like to play out this episode with a performance by Josh Aiken or Joe Shaken all over. And this is a performance that was submitted for the open show with plenty of time for me to include but got missed at the last moment because I was working on that open show uh, until very late in the evening. <laughs> it was an oopsie. It was an oopsie. We're very sorry, Josh, but the the music is great, and thank you again. I know you told us not to put this in, but we're doing it anyway. Yeah. So until next episode, James, I will be looking for a home in this wonderful cover from Josh Aiken or Joe Shaken all over. And I will be looking for a home inside that just wonderful hoodie that has Todd Rundgren's eyes just plastered all over it. (laughs) All right, let's play out with Josh here, and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks, huh? All right. Bye!
congrats guys, and good luck on season six. Have a good one. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the thirdmen underscore podcast on Instagram, at thirdmencast on Twitter, and search The Third Men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not for profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100 plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show and i'm wayne kaminsky You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. I mean, if you want to keep it simple and looser, let's let's get out of our rigid structure. Let's break free of these chains. Yeah. Wizard of True Star. I'm going to wear it for the rest of this thing. You look like Daru. <laughs> I thought like it was that cool. is a hoodie Daru would I wear. thought it was cool. What you do is you put like a jacket over it, and then all you see is his lips. <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the stuff. So.
I have friends who have tickets to the game, and sometimes I'm their last-minute guy, you know, because like, I'm, I'm you know, 10 minutes from the park, and my friend who has great seats, he's like, do you want my tickets tonight? And I was like, ah! <laughs> Look, if you have to go to the Dodger game instead of being here, we understand. <laughs> you know, I probably didn't make plans tonight thinking maybe, you know, it's a yeah. Friday night. <laughs> anyway, where was I in my story? So, it, uh, um... I've often wondered, like, am I going to see somebody walking around? I, I tend not to. And they also give you uh, training there that says you must not look the celebrities in the eye. Uh, <laughs> so I'm also very <laughs> conscious of that. Uh, I... Hold up. I love how the Zoom thing thinks your bed is a human being. I'm going to put it on for you. Shame. Shame. But uh, we can edit this part out, right? <laughs> <laughs> the embarrassing stuff.